0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack, brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. I think it's sort of like the dirty little secret of foreign correspondents who come to Israel is, you know, they work really hard to get, you know, a hold of this one or that one in their home country, this official or that official. But here they just pick up the phone and meet the person for coffee, you know. And not just that, people in general just are so welcoming and so vocal. And not everyone wants to share their story, obviously, but the people who do really want to tell it. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today on the show,
2: we welcome journalist Dina Kraft. Originally from the United States, Dina has been writing and reporting stories from Israel for more than 20 years as a correspondent for Haaretz and the Christian Science Monitor. The veteran reporter is also the host of The Branch, a monthly podcast where she meets pairs of Jews and Arabs, people who work together in different realms throughout Israel, divining and examining what makes their partnership work and how they handle the white elephant in the room, that is, the potentially viscerally emotional political conflict between them. Dina was formerly based in Jerusalem and Johannesburg for the Associated Press and has reported from throughout Africa as well as Pakistan, Jordan, Tunisia, Russia, and Ukraine. She has taught journalism at Northeastern, Harvard, and Boston University and has been a regular contributor to the New York Times. So... Dina, welcome. It's so nice to have you.
1: It's so nice to be here. Thank you.
2: What inspired you to become a journalist? And was it always a clear path for you? Because you and I have a lot in common. Um, First of all, we both have like American-Israeli husbands. We're both (laughs) journalists. Um, We both have a podcast. And uh, for me, it wasn't always a clear path. Like I started out in studying law and thinking I would become Ali McBeal. And it's only then that I started thinking about journalism. So what about you? As a young Dina, did you know this is what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I knew it was what I was going to do, but it was definitely always in my DNA because of my parents. My father was a journalist and my parents actually met when he was a young foreign correspondent based in London. And I grew up in this house where every Sunday morning the living room was blanketed in newspapers and my parents would pass back and forth this headline or that headline and outrage over whatever was going on in the world and their shared passion, their glue is the news. And when I was two or three years old, Nixon was being investigated and my mother, who's from New Zealand actually originally and was not even a U.S. citizen at this point, says that she took me in the stroller and my brother in hand and walked in front of the White House with a big sign that said, Impeach Nixon. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. She says it was her idea and everybody else followed her afterwards. I don't know if that's true, but my father ended up covering the Watergate hearings And my mother, being a news junkie, um, would come bring him sandwiches and flasks of coffee with my brother and I in tow. So I had it always there. And I also remember going with my father on the weekends to this old Russian couple that sold newspapers and we would get the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun and what was in the Washington Star, a defunct newspaper now. Again, like I said, it was just part of my life was newspapers.
2: Do you think that as a journalist, do you eventually kind of become a little bit immune to it? You know, just like immune system physically over time becomes stronger. Do you become like more able to not become so depressed about what you read on the news? It's of crisis after crisis that you've been covering for so
1: long? I don't know if I get more removed. I feel like in, as time goes on, in some ways, I feel more attached to the news. I think part of that is becoming a parent. I remember, you know, leafing through newspapers and seeing pictures of starving children before I had children, and it felt kind of distant. And now you're like, no, that could have been my baby, mm-hmm. you know? So I feel like if anything, you, you care more because mm. you care more about the world that's going to come after you're not here anymore. You do take think, some things in proportion. You know that some things are now clickbait or sort of overwritten and whatnot. But I've always been drawn to human stories, not so much the stories about he said, she said, sort of political spats, um, internal baseball things. I've always been drawn more to stories of connection and interconnection. And so in that way, I feel maybe a little bit less attached to the day to day news and more to like the, the bigger trends that I see and, you know, and sort of how different stories and, people I've interviewed influence me from across the world. Like for example, I most recently when I was living in the States in Boston, I got very involved in a concept called restorative justice, which is about victims and offenders finding ways to dialogue after a terrible crime. And that was in part influenced by my interest in restorative justice for my reporting in Africa, watching a nation kind of heal by having victims and offenders come together and tell their stories so the country can move on. And then here I find myself drawn to stories just like that. Maybe not victims and offenders, but people who've shared trauma and find some connection. One of the episodes in the branch is about two parents who both lost children to the conflict. One whose son was a soldier, Robbie Damlin, and then Basim Aramin, father whose a nine-year-old daughter was shot by a border policeman, and actually, Basam's story, together with a story of another father who lost a daughter uh, in this case to a suicide bombing, a Jewish father, their story is now um, being, has been put into a novel by Colin McCann, and Steven Spielberg has just went, bought the right for the film version of the story. And these stories are very powerful, you know, and they cross political lines, and they kind of remind us who and what we are as human beings.
0: In the movies, they always show journalists have a mentor, like some grisly reporter who's (laughs) chugging down coffees and smoking (laughs) cigarettes while he goes and seeks the truth. Did you have mentors like that growing up?
1: My dad always says he was my first editor. And indeed, like when I would, you know, present him essays for my English class, they would be marked up in red and whatnot. Um, And actually, my grandfather always said, Dina, you're going to be a columnist one day. And it's funny because you know he that was just based on essays and things I wrote for you know high school and in my in my newspaper and I never did become a columnist but I think that having a podcast is kind of like the modern day digital version in a way of being a columnist like going out into the field seeing what you find bringing back voices of people you might not normally hear or might not hear in depth and kind of putting your own touch to it. So I feel like in some ways I've kind of lived into that. And at the AP, I had amazing mentors. I had editors who really sat with me and rewrite my copy in front of me, and you know, and show me how my lead was buried, you know, five paragraphs deep in, or kind of pull out like the telling details. I'll give a quick shout out to Ron Campius. I think helped craft my writing. And another friend and mentor, Jonathan Furziger, who was my first boss. He hired me when I came to Jerusalem as a college student. Uh, for the UPI office, I remember him sitting me down in front of the computer and saying, "Dina, does your lead sing? Read your lead out loud. Does it sing?" And so to this day, I I have to read my lead out loud and make sure it sings. Mm. And it was actually fortunate I was able to actually feature Jonathan on a podcast of the branch. He has a longstanding friendship with Saud Abu Ramadan, a veteran reporter in Gaza. And in the episode, I tell the story of their deep friendship that goes back almost 30 years pre-Oslo and how they would spend time together in Gaza and Jonathan would bring his two young children who knew Saud's young children. And it sounds so unlikely, it's sort of dreamlike, right? Like a a, a family from Tel Aviv and a family from Gaza City.
0: Seems like the AP sent you, I mean, not only to Israel, but South Africa, Pakistan. Did you ever say no to a posting? I mean, these are some dangerous places.
1: Well, Pakistan was not a posting. It was a. I was there to cover an election. That was the one place I thought about not going because it was a year after 9-11. And actually, here we are at the IDC. The Daniel Pearl Institute is right here, right? The the mm-hmm. slain. Did you know uh, him? I didn't know him, but I felt like he haunted me. I knew his story well. You know, I was like, everybody was, was following it and, and then devastated, of course, when he was killed. I was told before I w- went to Pakistan by... Uh, a New York Times journalist who had been based there and was Jewish, so, you know, do not advertise your identity, your religious identity, at least. But as an American, I couldn't hide it. But I remember I was out to dinner one night in Pakistan with a local professor and he said, Dina, where are you from? I said, no, oh, from America. No, where Where are you from? I was like, oh, my family's American. You know, he he clearly mm. wanted he he got that somehow I was Jewish and wanted me to say so. And I just, you know, refused but um, we had armed guards with us going everywhere. I was so tired of being just in the sort of bubble of the office, and I wanted to see a little bit of Islamabad. And so I beseeched my driver with our guard to uh, take me to this area called Rawalpindi, And it's a poor area, just town just outside of Islamabad. And there was a market, and it was just very colorful and interesting for me to see. And then very shortly afterwards, one of the masterminds of 9-11 was arrested there.
0: But what motivated you to go? I mean, it's not the money. Everyone knows journalists are... Well underpaid. Is it burning curiosity, the sense of adventure, the camaraderie?
1: Camaraderie is part of it. You definitely sort of form a bond when you're abroad with other foreign correspondents. But I think just curiosity, just curiosity and the thrill of an adventure, that's definitely true, but also just wanting to dive deep and get to know people. Like I think it's such a crazy thing that as a journalist, you have free license to like knock on doors and say, hi, I'm a journalist. I'm doing this story. Can I talk to you? And people nine times out of 10, open their door and talk to you. And it's such a privilege. And it's not one I take lightly. And you have to be careful with people's stories. And recently, I was profiled about the branch in the Times of Israel. And it was like, oh, in reading the story, I mean, the reporter did a great job. But it's just a reminder of how delicate and how exposed you are, you know, when you share your story, and you have to do a good job. You know, people have told me when I've told them certain stories, oh, you should make that into a novel. It's so interesting. I was like why would I make it into a novel? Like, it's so much more interesting. Real life Not-
2: is so much more unbelievable than than a novel could ever be. That's what I always say. The stories that real people go through and what real people inflict on one another is unimaginable. Like, you'd read a novel about that and you'd say, like, no, that could never happen. Exactly. And, uh, you know, coronavirus, I mean, <laughs> all yeah. of it, you know, they could all be, like, made up by in crazy imagination and you would think, like, that wouldn't actually
1: happen. Or Donald Trump. But if a screenwriter had come up with that line, someone would say, that's crazy, that's so unrealistic. Right.
2: Right, that would never happen. And now it's our reality. Yes. In April 2013, you were stationed in Boston when the Boston Marathon bombing happened. How did reporting on that bombing?
1: in the U.S. compared to covering bombings in Israel. It was so different. I remember I was sitting in my car and I heard the news go off and I immediately called the New York Times, which I was doing some stringing for. And I said, hey, I'm in Boston. Do you want me to go to the hospital or cover something? No, no, we think we're covered. And I was like, no, you're not. You have no idea what's about to happen. And of course, five minutes later, the phone rang. Yeah, actually, Dina, can you go? (laughs) And so I went to... I think the first hospital I went to was Mass General and we were all cordoned off and we couldn't go in the hospital. And it was so frustrating because in Israel, I'd covered, unfortunately, way too many suicide bombings and clashes to count. And you go right into the hospital, you sit on the bed of the person, not who's been seriously injured, but the people who are in emergency care and you talk to them and you get their account. Here we were told no, privacy rules mean you can't go and speak to anybody. Of course. And Israel's like privacy schmivacy, you yep. know, yeah. people it's kinda of combined. I mean, I think the government wants to kind of get their line, you know Jews bleed to story out, mm-hmm. right? And the people who have just experienced it also feel very naturally they want to tell their story.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It's like across the board, like in the United States, there's just this kid who came into our kid's gun nursery here in Israel. He's saying things like, don't enter in my physical space or, you know, mm. like, and it's this whole American thing of like privacy, don't intrude upon each other's space, you know,
1: and here we are literally in each other's faces. And it's like, nobody has a problem with that. Right. That distance, you don't have that here, which is part of what draws me to the story specifically here is because you can't have that access. I think it's sort of like the dirty little secret of foreign correspondents who come to Israel is you know, they work really hard to get, you know, a hold of this one or that one in their home country, this official or that official. But here they just pick up the phone and meet the person for coffee, you know? And not just that, people in general just are so welcoming and so vocal. And not everyone wants to share their story, obviously, but the people who do really want to tell it.
0: Have you seen any change in in journalists' attitude towards Israel in the last 10 years? Where we're sitting, it seems like many journalists are biased against Israel, but maybe that's a misperception.
1: I think journalists, when they come here, they see the full picture and they don't necessarily come with an agenda. And I think especially people who have an agenda, whether they're, you know, say like an American Jew or a Palestinian American, everyone sees the conflict through their eyes. And if their agenda is not being put forward in that article, they find it biased. And I think journalists' job is to say, that's not our job to push through your agenda. Our job is to report what we see. And I think some people feel like it's unfair. But I feel like overall, journalists here have hard work to do. There's a lot less foreign correspondents here than there used to be, which is a problem. So you get less of a, a range of reporting. Is a lot more reliance on the wire services than ever before and on, on the major papers can afford to have correspondence like the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post. But I think in terms of coverage, I mean, what you see as biased is not something that someone else might see as biased. But what I think I try to do in telling the stories, especially in the podcast and the branch, is to tell the stories that are not normally covered. Here, reporters are under such stress to cover the elections and to cover the latest political spasm of violence, you know, between, you know, Hamas and Gaza and the Israeli army, for example, or what's happening in Syria. But what I'm fortunate to be able to do is sort of take a step back and say, well, actually, where are people connecting? And I think sometimes the bias comes to people say, well, but where are the good stories? Where are the stories of human connection? You know, this, the podcast is sponsored by Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America, who supports the hospitals here in Jerusalem. And those are places where it's a real island of coexistence, where you have Arab nurses and doctors and staff and families every day together working without any labels. They're just working to save lives and, and to help each other out in your transition to podcasts how have you found that it conveys the story differently than in print what what does voice add to the story i'm so glad you asked that question because i love audio so much and i always have just listening to audio stories on national public radio and then of course podcasts came in but the voice when you hear someone's voice you can't dismiss them as other or as some sort of stereotyped nameless faceless other they suddenly become real and present and human to you. And even if you don't like their politics or you don't like the where they're coming from, you can't dismiss them. They become very much more of a whole person. On paper, when you say, she said, or he said, you don't have that voice. You don't have the timber. You don't have the laughter. You don't have the warmth. But I think it brings so much. And also sounds, just the sounds of someone cooking in their kitchen or the sound of children coming into a kitchen. I tried very hard once to get the sound of a, a goat to bleat, you know, when I was in this Bedouin village a few months ago, and I had to like <laughs> hang over the side of in the, in the middle of in this darkness to get this goat to make a sound. Or I was just uh, doing a story about a mixed couple. He's Muslim and she's Jewish, and they run a restaurant called Majda together just outside of Jerusalem. And that is a great restaurant. Oh, Delicious. I'm so glad you've been there. Yeah. So beautiful. It's so pastoral and lovely. So there I was, like, you know. Eating the snap peas and looking at the new freshly made carrot, you know, getting those sounds of the, of the call to prayer or the sound of the birds and the chickens. I mean, you just, that doesn't come through in a print story. And in a television story, as you know, from your work on TV, there's so much visual, Stimulation. Stimulation. You can't really take it in. Mm -hmm. And there's something very intimate about the sound of a voice and the sound of life around you. And when you're sitting there, it feels like only you are listening to that story in that moment. That's why I think podcasts are so, so special. You are washing your dishes. You are walking your dog. And only you hear that voice and you feel like they're speaking directly to you. And it's very special. Yeah, that's why, obviously, we love
2: podcasts. And I think also the difference, you know, what people say, but then television would give you even more information. But I think as soon as you see somebody, as soon as you see the way they dress or the kind of, you know, mimicry or we have been, you know, ingrained to judge every single physical appearance and voice is something much more intimate, but also neutral. So you can listen to someone and really form an opinion over the course of, you know, half an hour, an hour, however long you're listening to them, and you don't have that first, second... I've already made up my mind about that person.
1: Yeah. And there's something about their personality comes through. And of course, the podcast that launched all the podcasts, right, was Serial. Did you listen to Serial? Of course. Of course. So not at first I was like, God, he sounds so friendly and you really like him. But the, the moment that I really felt he might be guilty, which he starts asking him about when he stole some money from the mosque and he got so defensive and so harsh. And you heard the timber in his voice change. And I thought... Wow, if he could change that quickly mm-hmm. in his voice, maybe there's some other side of him lurking that you don't hear in the friendly "hey, hey, hey" banter right, between the two. Right, of them. right,
2: Like if you'd been looking, uh, you know, at him on television and you'd kind of been charmed by because he's, you know, a good-looking, young, and he's man. super charming. Right.
0: So we just talked about Majda, the restaurant with an Arab and Israeli working together, serving delicious food. What have you discovered about Arabs and Israelis working together?
1: What I've discovered about Arabs and Jews in Israel who work together, um, and also Palestinians and Israelis who work together, is that the people who really talk about what's hard, the people who really go in deep and are not afraid ripping off the band-aids, are the ones who are the closest friends. Um, which sounds kind of counterintuitive. You would think, oh, we don't talk about politics; we just talk about cooking, or we just talk about teaching, or we just talk about featured actors, and I featured teachers and featured cooks. But the ones who really, really connect, the ones who's who are like really soul friends. Are the ones who you know go deep and talk about their family histories. For example, there's an episode uh, called "The Prophet and the Poet" about two rappers in Jaffa who are part of um, a band called System Ali, whose music is amazing, and they sing, they rap in Hebrew, in Arabic, in Yiddish, in Amharic, in Russian, in English. And when they write their songs, they write them out of conflict, out of conflicts that they have within their own group dynamic. The two rappers that I interviewed, Muhammad knows the story of Netta's grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor. And Netta knows the story of Muhammad's family and of their displacement. Apropos, you are just talking about nursery school and kids, um, they're so close that when Muhammad's wife had their two sons, one of the first people to come to the hospital and hold them was Netta. And when Muhammad was late, Picking up his child from uh, nursery school, something we all know about, right? Mm. He had Netta go pick up his son. And he gets a phone call from the nursery school teacher Muhammad, there's this Jew here to <laughs> <laughs> pick up your son. Is that okay with you? He said, Yes, it's Netta. He's like, My best friend. Of course it's okay. So that friendship spills out beyond their own friendship. Like it normalizes that they're friends, it normalizes that a Jew picks up an Arab's child from. Is the
0: the branch short for the olive branch? Is this show about coexistence?
1: Well done. Yes, it is. It's a reference to the olive branch. It's a reference to branching out and connecting in different ways. And it is very much a story about shared society. It's interesting you bring up the word coexistence. So that was the word that was, you know, the linguist Franco, I would say, in recent years, you know, of Jews and Arabs living together coexistence kind of gives off this feeling of you exist here and I exist there. We don't interconnect. But the real goal activists in this world say is shared society. So that's the terminology that's used more and more now, shared society, where Arab citizens and Jewish citizens can live together in equality and dignity and all work towards a shared society. And the idea of this podcast was not my own. I was approached by Hadassah organization in New York City. They had this idea to look at what's happening um, in the hospital itself, which is we described as a place where this happens every day and and without much, you know, deep thought, they're just doing it. They're living that
2: world. They're actually the the only organization to ever have been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Do you think that it's a coincidence that it's an all women's
1: organization that takes (laughs) on these initiatives? I like that. I hadn't thought about that. I think women think about care because they're the caretakers. I mean, Men are also caregivers and caretakers, of course, as well. But historically, that's been women's role in the world and are the healers, right? Um, So, yeah, I think actually you've hit upon something. I think women thinking about healing and thinking about what's good for everybody and not sort of segmenting and kind of to a male, you know, there's a line in the sand and what's mine is mine and yours is yours. But thinking communally more is definitely sort of something women think about more. And that makes sense.
0: You're a prolific content creator with your podcast and... Writing it seems like at times you're putting out an article a day. I mean, what's <laughs> thank your thank you for
1: noticing? <laughs>
0: what's your process, and do you ever get stressed out by deadlines? Oh
1: my god, I definitely get stressed out by deadlines. Um, I mean, it's sort of like triage. I feel like you know, I'll say, okay, what's due today? What can I push off till tomorrow? How can I arrange my day so I can get my interviews done in the morning, for example, and write in the afternoon, or, or I was last night writing until midnight, for do you example. You have to
0: set the stage with a Light, desk.
1: Oh, wow. Well, if How do you, you get you, into if you, your zone? Yeah, if, if you can ask my husband, you can say that I have teacups strewn around the house. <laughs> and I always thought that my memoir will be called The Tea is Cold Again. <laughs> because I'm always <laughs> making cups of tea and then forgetting them. But um, yeah, wow, interesting question. So I recently was telling my husband, I really wish my desk was by the window. Because I feel like that light is really helpful, like sunlight cr- stimulates creativity. And... Um, I was away for the weekend recently, and I came back, and he had indeed moved my desk to the window, which was- That's awesome. adorable. And what just, a romantic gesture. Yeah, he's a thoughtful guy. Yeah. And, um, and it was partially inspired because I went to the home of the author of Little Women, Louisa mm-hmm. May Alicott. She lived in Concord, Massachusetts, which is not far from where I was living in. And um, I was in her bedroom, and her father, who was also a thoughtful, sweet person, built her desk- against the window and against two windows in fact so she would get like the eastern light and the western light and she would uh have more light in the day to write because of course she was you know there was no electricity but I kind of channel Louisa May Alicott I like to think uh if only uh, when I was sitting there but yeah I like to have a cup of tea it's true a cup of tea and sunlight helps me and then at night I kind of move to the couch and the kids are all asleep and I have like a spotlight and I have my sort of and a cozy blanket and I then i have my cozy couch writing time
2: when you know until until the internet came about and journalists were just kind of like writing the story handing it you know to their editor and then you know they weren't really involved in all the marketing and the social media and trying to push it out and today journalists are expected to do that a lot more to kind of be their own, you know, mini promoters. How or do you measure the success of the articles you put out of the podcast? Are you very involved with the, you know, after the scenes of trying to get it to as many people as possible through social media, et cetera?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really important thing to raise. It is a whole other layer of work. You sort of feel like you hear this from authors a lot. They work, you know, years and years on a book and they just want to go to sleep (laughs) after once it's published. But no, that's when the fun begins and you're pushed out into the world. So even though these are not books, these are articles or episodes in a podcast, yeah, the work then does begin anew. You have to figure out a way to get it out there. There's a lot of noise and a lot of competition. I think there are 800,000 podcasts now on iTunes, and it'll go up to a million, I think, in the next few months, I was told. So I post all my stories on Instagram On Facebook and on Twitter and I don't just post them I really try to give them a personal loving nudge like when I did X story I was struck by this question and that led me out to this village to find out more and to pull out some quote usually you know Mm -hmm. and and -and so-and-so told me this I try to be concise but try to make it feel like the person's there a little bit behind the scenes with me I think people like that I think it really doesn't help at all when you just sort of post my latest like who cares right you have to sort of give people a hand into the story and also visuals is really are really important when I go on my podcast I always have a photographer with me to take some photos of me out there with my microphone and trying not to get swept away you know on on a windy day and and also to have photos of the people that I'm interviewing because as you said like with tv you have this barrage of visual information but a telling photograph can be really helpful
0: would you encourage your children to become journalists
1: uh, you know, my father always told me not to be a journalist. <laughs> but then I seek, secretly or not so secretly, I think is quite proud that I am one. So I have to say, I would be definitely proud of them. So when you think forward,
2: when you grow up, what are the big things you want to achieve? Thank you for asking.
1: I don't actually get a chance to breathe between deadlines to think about that very much, as you have noted. But um, when I do think about it, I'd love some time to step back and dive deep into something. I feel like I... You know, I've been so lucky to tell stories and have access to people's lives and worlds. I'd like to talk a little, maybe a bit about um, stories that are more personal to me, stories that relate to my own family story in Israel. I've I've contemplated doing a family memoir, working backwards from a great uncle who came here in 1920 and uh, as a 19-year-old and actually tragically committed suicide. And his grave is in a cemetery in the Kinneret called... um, and there's a lot of sort of stories. I think of the early pioneers here that are filled with romanticism, but there was also a lot of trauma and tragedy and difficulty in creating this country. And looking back to see what did they want to create? Like he was part of a world that wanted to create a utopia here. And I've told my Palestinian friends this that they wanted to create a utopia, they wanted to create a homeland. They they're like, really? They weren't just colonialists, you know? Um, so I think to kind of bridge stories of history, but also stories in my own family and my own experiences, um, I'd like to sort of we braid those stories together somehow.
2: Does working or interviewing people from different sides of the conflict, Israelis and Palestinians and Arab Israelis, does that give you... Hope, or do you think it's just a you know a, a drop of water
1: in the ocean? I think in the moment of doing a story, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of of discovery, right? Like, I mean, just the other day, I was in Kfar Kara, which is a village in the Triangle area of Israel, um, uh, just south of Haifa, bordering the West Bank, and it's been in the news lately because it's part of the Trump peace plan, um, that it could possibly become part of a future Palestinian state, which locals are not happy about, because they feel like they are Israeli first. um, And they are also Palestinian culturally, but they are Israeli citizens. And I just, I came across by chance, this group of 18 year olds who are studying in a post high school program, and leadership, and before they go to university, and they are going across the country meeting all different kinds of Israeli Jews. The day I was there, the following day, they were going to Bnei Barak to meet with Haredi Jews. And they have a dialogue group with Jewish students their own age. And, you know, they're so curious and open. And it was definitely one of these moments of like, wow, look at this. Like there is the, there are these intersections. So I'm very encouraged when I see these intersections because as we know, Life in Israel is fairly segregated between Arabs and Jews by design and by default. That's changing because so many more Arab citizens are going to the universities. They're going into the workforce and whether it's in high tech or in medicine. So I think these stories are definitely hopeful, but I think they're happening in some ways in spite of the general political atmosphere around them. They feel great dismay about the way they're spoken about by the prime minister. They are made to feel like a threat instead of a welcome as citizens here. So I feel like there is hope, but it's happening sort of despite. And when I think about the relationship, for example, Jonathan and Saud, family from Tel Aviv, a family from Gaza, those stories will become extinct if we don't find a way back to each other eventually.
0: Dina, you recently completed a speaking tour of the U.S. for your podcast. How were you received by audiences? Did you face any pushback or criticism?
1: It was a great tour. I was in Boston, D.C., Miami, New York City, Tampa. And I have to say the audiences were so warm. They were so hungry for these stories. They wanted to know more. They wanted to tell their friends about it. They were like, everyone should be listening to this. You know, they were actually kind of part of this group project of how to spread the word. And I was like, no, subscribe, subscribe, review us on iTunes, you know, all of that. But they were really curious. And they also, and remarkably, they want to come now to Israel and see those places. They're like, how can I go to the ice cream factory where the Arab and Jew have an ice cream factory together in the <laughs> north? Where can I go to in the Shuk and I want Tel- to go to Aviv? that ice cream factory. Yeah, Buza Definitely worth going. And in Tel Aviv, we can go together to the, the they, have, they have two shops in Tel Aviv and they're really amazing flavors.
2: And is it also Jews and Arabs working together in the shops?
1: There are. In the north, yes. and Tel Aviv, less so from what I noticed. But in the north, definitely. And, and the women who worked at the shop that I visited in Tarshid, uh, they grew up within miles of each other, but had never met until they were scooping ice cream together. And they developed these good friendships and they went out after work. So on the one hand, you have, you know, the, the partners themselves, you know, one's a kibbutznik and one is an Arab chef and they came together. But they what they're creating is, goes beyond them and their own partnership to really create a, a culture of, of shared society with an ice cream shop <laughs> as well. Um, and also it's interesting what you do see in the Tel Aviv shops Are the ice cream flavors written in Arabic on the walls, which is something you don't always see? Mm -hmm. There was only one person that gave me pushback out of all the people I spoke to, but really everybody was incredibly open and encouraging and just excited, basically, that these stories were out there and happy that they're being told.
2: What is the next story
1: that you're working on, print, or on your podcast? So on the podcast, I'm working on a story about Hadassah Hospital about a school that is run inside the hospital for kids, you know, who are sick and there for prolonged periods of time and have to study together. Um, So this is a place where they kind of get out of their wards and their beds and get to know each other, but also families get to know each other, right? Because these are families who are, who really develop intense bonds as well. I remember years ago covering a bombing and being outside of an intensive care unit in a hospital and being surprised to see the ultra-Orthodox parents and the Palestinian parents sharing flasks of coffee, but also sharing prayer time together. I mean, their sons were lying side by side, injured in the same bombing. I mean, I think healthcare is the place that reminds you that we're all human and we're all frail, and hospitals are a place where nobody wants to be. But if you have to be there, you least want to be around people that care and give you the best possible care. And in general, in this next season, explore – Yes, friendships and yes, connection between two people, but also wider interactions. Where do these interactions happen? Whether it's um, people getting together for meals or um, who volunteer together, stories just of interaction. As I said before, these are the ones that actually are strong. And I think, you know, we talk about the peace process and we know one day peace will come to this land, but it, it will be politicians who sign the paper, but it's people on the ground who are laying the ground for it. And I feel like those people are the people we talk about in the branch. They're the ones laying the groundwork so that we can actually have a true shared society and true peace, which is what everybody at the end of the day wants for themselves and their families.
2: Tina, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, this was so much
1: fun. Thank you for having me. Founder Stories is brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app.